Welcome to the Innovation in Financial Inclusion podcast. I'm Andrew Wallace. And I'm Paul Vick. And we're from Community Finance Solutions at the University of Salford. Community Finance Solutions is a research unit specialising in financial inclusion and affordable credit. In this episode, we'll be talking about the reality of managing your finances on a low income, including challenges and coping strategies. To learn more about this, we've spoken with Catherine Connors and David Young. Catherine is the service manager in the Welfare Rights, Debt Advice and Fair Charging Service team at Salford City Council. David is a research fellow at Sustainable Housing and Urban Studies Unit based at the University of Salford. David specialises in social, social security policy and the experience of income change and insecurity. David, from your research in the area, what have you learned about people experiencing poverty? Um, so I've learned a great deal about people experiencing poverty. I mean, I I think the um, I think I'd say there are three broad areas that my particular research has um, has found. Um, just as examples, so people rely heavily on relational networks, um, and they of course have unequal access to this. So these can provide support, can keep costs down and are a source of um, borrowing. Um, So my research shows how important the sort of relational side of this is in terms of borrowing. So knowing somebody's full story, what their needs are, uh, when they can pay things back, for example. And I think this sort of understanding is sometimes missing from the benefit system or from um, financial services. And I think we can learn quite a lot from the way in which people lend each other money. Um, Secondly, that debt can diminish um, somebody's standards of living and and distort their financial realities that we that we look at. So if we look at, for example, just their their income, some people can be on a relatively high income, but actually they're spending money uh, on um, servicing their debt, and then there's not a lot of uh, of money left. So that sort of, in terms of understanding the reality, that can kind of blur things by just looking at income. Um, and finally, and importantly for my research, um, the income change and insecurity is a is a big part of a lot of people's experience. So most statistics look at a snapshot of people's year to year income. And I think this hides um, the change people experience within the year. So, for example, um, most obviously somebody could receive money monthly and do be OK in terms of the start of the month and not the end of the month. But then other people, for example, have jobs where they earn a lot of money within certain months of the year, for example. And then you can have other people who uh, are on insecure contracts and that can earn a different amount of money every week and every month. So, again, uh, just looking at a sort of yearly income uh, for that person and making, I guess, within that the assumption that they can smooth that income in a regular way throughout the year sometimes is not a, a way to understand uh, what's happening for people so that's so my work I guess focuses um, quite a lot on that sort of changing how it's experienced in shorter periods yeah and how would you say poverty has evolved in recent years so I guess there are different ways to conceptualize and to measure poverty um, the most common of course is re- is relative relative poverty uh, most commonly um households that earn less than 60 percent of the medium income of others in that year so um and i think that 
I think that relative nature of poverty is really important. So it's not just about whether you've got enough money, it's about whether you've got enough money in the society in which you live so that you're able to participate in society, travel to work, have healthy food, for example. Um, so in terms of who's in poverty, so there are about 13 million people or 20 percent of the, pop the UK population that are in relative poverty. And um, that's uh, after taking into account housing costs. Um, and you're more likely to be um, in poverty if you're from uh, a certain ethnic um, background. So if you're from a household where the head of the household is from a Pakistani and Bangladeshi background, for example, you're more likely to be in poverty than someone from a white background. Uh, work's an important factor. Um, so if you're from uh, a household where nobody works, you're more likely to be in, in poverty. Um, this is obviously has a few caveats. So um, it, there's an there's been an increase in in work poverty in recent years. So for some people or increasing number of people, work isn't a sort of way out of poverty. Um, and related to that, it it depends on the sort of contract you have and the sort of work you do. So people in self-employment, people that do part time work are more likely to be in poverty. And then also people um, in certain sectors such as um, retail care sector are more likely to be in poverty and, and of course that has a gender element in itself because a lot more um, women are work in the care sector and um, housing has a has an impact so um, people um, that rent from the social rented sector or the private rented sector are more likely to be in poverty than people um, who own the house or have a mortgage you're also more likely to be in poverty if you're um, you have a disability um, than if than if you don't, um, and there and like I said, there there the there's that change in in work poverty. I guess to partly answer your question, I think there's also there are some changes in terms of in the last few decades in terms of pensioner poverty being reduced. That doesn't mean that there isn't pensioner poverty, but that's that's kind of reduced over the years. And then there's been um, more people um, of a working age, um, particularly working age benefit claimants. Um, are on are on low income or inadequate income to meet their needs. I think that's an important sort of link with my work, which is kind of focused on um, uh, means tested benefit claimants of working age and how they provide um, where they get an inadequate income from, I guess. Um, and I also think, as I said before, it's important to look beyond these statistics, that there's also a context to what's going on with people. I think we can kind of fall into putting people into neat groups and they're obviously people's experiences is really diverse and to fully understand what's going on I think you um, you need to speak to people and you need to look at how it affects people's lives in the shorter short term. What is the impact of poverty and living on a low income on households and communities? Yes yeah, so I think there are there are a number of impacts um, they um, I think Poor physical and mental health is an impact um, that people find within the household. So there's evidence that living on a, a low income means that people miss meals, particularly people with children. Um, when when uh, when times are tough, um, mental health um, can be impacted by the sort of stresses and strains of managing on a low income. I think getting back to the sort of relative nature of poverty, that the not being able to participate in society so one of the hardest consequences to the people that I've spoken to is not being able to afford 
um, sort of social activities and holidays, particularly people with children not being able to buy treats and clothing or to be able to afford things like school trips and things like that. So that idea of not being able to participate because you haven't got the money to be able to. And I think a, a sort of short term decision making process, perhaps in terms of financial management. So um, it means making these short term decisions about what you do with your money. And it kind of I think it can prevent people having longer term horizons in terms of saving and in terms of planning their lives and in terms of things like saving for a deposit and getting a mortgage and being able to own the house and stuff. Um, I think that that also the things I've been talking about affect communities. I think a lot of the people I've spoken to um, develop incredible bonds with the communities they live in. Um, people often borrow from sort of family and, and friendship groups. But I think those those relationships are as sort of prone to strain as any other relationship. So I think it it can be difficult when somebody on a low income is trying to sort of rely on the support or the financial backing of someone else that's on a low income. And I think that can cause um, difficulties in terms of their relationship, in terms of things like guilt and um, and sometimes sort of issues of control. Um, I think it's also worth mentioning shame and stigma briefly. I think that um, it's a big part of living in poverty. So an idea that you're a certain type of person or somebody's a certain type of person because they're uh, in poverty. Um, and I think this is often sort of fueled by media representations and also by a sort of shared assumption of sort of work ethic and personal responsibility that I think sometimes dominates policy discussions as well and I think it's um it's sometimes one of the one of the most difficult parts of living on a low income for people that idea that it's kind of it makes you a certain type of person or it kind of sets you out as somebody that's kind of failed in some way so I think that's a big impact both on the individual and household but also on on certain communities and what are some of the coping mechanisms for people living in poverty? Yeah, so co again, coping, I think, is it varies from household to household and individual to individual. It's also it for, for some people, it's survival. So it's it's quite difficult to um, move beyond the sort of getting by nature of, of coping to look at mechanisms and how you how you might understand it. But there I think there are general um, strategies so cutting back on sort of non-essentials first of all and then essential expenditure uh, prioritizing children as I've mentioned uh, getting help and support from family and friends which is usually the first um, option um, I think I I guess my work as I said focuses on um, not just um, how people manage on a low income but how they manage on a sort of changing income so um, when income is received, it's really important. And related to that, when you receive support, I think is really important. So um, it's not just the sort of support or the sort of financial help someone can give you. It's that, you know, they can come around and buy you some shopping at a certain time or look after your children at a certain time. So not just what they give, but when they when they give it, I guess. Um, so yeah, the, the, a lot of this, a lot of the stuff I've found is related to time a lot more than I think a lot of people, um, a lot of researchers think about. So coping is about 
the sort of day to day life in which people live their lives and quite often can't be understood in terms of looking at monthly income or or income statistics um, on their own, I guess. And how do you deal with unexpected costs or bridge gaps between income and expenditure? Yeah, yeah. So unexpected um, costs are a, a huge part of the lives of people I've spoken to. So it might be something's broken down or something needs repair or there's an unexpected bill. Um, those who could save for um, the possibility of these things happening, um, this this is a lot more. It sounds a lot more straightforward than it than it is. So um, I had examples of speaking to people who they saved over time for essentials. So they saved for a car they needed for work. I had one person who say was saving for a sort of therapy and um, aids that her disabled son needed. So they have that saving and dip into it over time was, was a quite common thing to do um, if people had savings. Um, but obviously, again, that had a sort of emotional context in terms of guilt of taking that money from a need of a family member, for example. Again, uh, those who could borrowed, um, and this was focused on usually on family and friends. Some some people had a a member of their their household, sorry, their the wider family or or friendship group that could provide sort of flexible um, help to them. Um, but others obviously um, didn't, and there are co there are consequences as I've mentioned in terms of the relationship. Um, so there were people who found it really difficult in terms of they borrow money from somebody, and then there'd be an expectation that they'd spend it on certain things, or there'd be an expectation that um, uh, that they'd live their life in certain ways, and it allowed particularly family members to be able to comment on their sort of parenting. Uh, style or the or, or the life decisions they made which was really difficult so um those things can be really difficult in terms of you, you have a, a sort of income shock an emergency something that needs paying for and then you have to work usually people worked out what was the what was the first point of call and usually it's sort of family and friends and then there were other options that came later in terms of um short-term loans for example um but that again depends on credit ratings and depended on the sort of history of borrowing and things like that. So, um, and bridging gaps between income and expenditure, I think, is a similar sort of regular reality, and it's, re it's very related to my work. So, um, I think there's a lack of attention paid to sort of when income's received. Um, so, um. The bridging gaps is a kind of constant reality for people on a day to day basis when they're on a low income, I think. Um, and these gaps, again, were were sort of a, a bridge through cutting back, um, going without, particularly, as I said, the parents of children um, who are sort of protecting the needs of their children before their own. And those short term practices of borrowing and saving that I've just that I've just mentioned. I think an interesting thing I found was the sort of interrelated nature of people's finances and those pay periods so for example you could have somebody that's paid monthly um, that um, struggles within the month and then borrows from a friend or family that is paid at a different pay period so that could basically be them working out a period where they're, they're working out being paid more regularly uh, to, to fit with the way in which they want to manage their money but of course that relied on 
the sort of financial stability of the person that they were borrowing from. So if something happened with someone's, someone else's income, had issues with their benefit income, for example, or they weren't paid as much, then that would have a knock on effect in terms of what someone could pay and what they could pay back. So the sort of interrelated nature I thought was quite, quite interesting. Um, and also, I think. It, I think it, these things need to be talked about in the context of the sort of structural constraints people have on their lives. So I think we're encouraged quite often to think about uh, individual agency, and particularly when we, people are thinking about policy and um, that it's about what people could do or what people do do, what they could do differently. Whereas it's it needs. I think these things need to be seen in the wider context of things like the inadequacy of benefit rates, for example, and the sort of low levels of pay that I've talked about already in terms of inward poverty, um, which kind of provide, provide important context. Thank you, David. Now moving on to Catherine at Salford City Council. Catherine, can you tell us a bit about your clients? Yeah, so you you may know that um, Salford, you know, is, is um, a city that's changed enormously over the, the time that I've worked here. I think we've had a population increase of around 20,000 over the last five years. You know, there's some uh, really like vibrant regeneration projects, very ambitious city. Um, but we still have um, significant levels of deprivation. I think we're still 18th in, in terms of the index of multiple deprivation for local authorities. So we there are there huge um, demands for uh, specialist advice out there. And the way that we operate is that we are an open service so that if you live in the city, you can contact us directly. Um, we also provide advice actually for employees of the city council, which is confidential, which I think is really important. Um, however, saying that, what we've been seeing really over the last few years is that the, the clients that come to us more often come through other professionals so they're already receiving support um, for various sort of quite complex issues and those professionals have identified that their finances are either a barrier to them becoming um, well so we get a lot of referrals from mental health services for example or um, you know their financial problems are causing other issues within the family um, or you know, reducing people's ability to stay independent at home. So I would say our client group, um, I think I, when I checked our, our latest figures, around 80% of the people that come to us come to the debt advice service through other professionals. Um, and it's similar, but slightly lower for welfare rights. So I think that that sort of dual model is really, really important so that people can come to us themselves, you know, we offer a specialist um, helpline every day for welfare rights and three times a week for debt. Um, so people who are able to can access that advice for themselves. And obviously advice is all about empowering people to make the right decisions for, for them and their families. But we really recognise that many people um, are not going to come forward and, and, and you'll know yourself from your own work that particularly around help with debt problems, the research shows that people don't seek support for, for a long time and all the reasons for that around stigma, around the really strong correlation between mental health problems and debt. And they're the people that we, we see most. You said earlier that a lot of your clients face debt problems. Is it just debt problems or there are, are there other financial problems that they face? 
Yeah, so we we have the sort of the welfare rights side of things and the debt side of things, and I think um, more and more so people's problems are interconnected. So what we're seeing more of is that we we have got um, missing benefits um, and or issues around welfare reform, which meant which means that benefits aren't available in certain circumstances, as you know, or there's a lot more restrictions on what people are eligible to claim. It's quite difficult for people to access the correct benefits. So often people will come in um, whereby we always do a check of their benefits and, and we do find things that are missing. So that's the first part of things is making sure that what you know people are entitled to is in place. I suppose previously that might have been um, the end of our involvement in advice, but but unfortunately what we're seeing now is that often benefits are in place, but people haven't got enough money to pay their essentials and service their debts. So it's also then becomes a debt problem. So I think there's much more um, working together between welfare rights, sort of income maximisation and, and trying to um, help people with complex debt problems. You said earlier that many are struggling with access to benefits. Are there any other causes of their financial problems? Yeah, I think so. Welfare reform certainly has been a driver over the last um, few years and we still see issues. It, we were talking recently about the, the spare room subsidy or the bedroom taxes, it's sort of colloquially known, and you don't see much in the media about the bedroom tax anymore, but, but obviously we still have people who come to us, and when we look at why they're struggling financially, they will be subject to the bedroom tax, so, so that, that's essentially money taken away from their ability to pay their rent. So those those problems still still exist and, and, and manifest uh, in, in financial problems. Some of the other problems, um, I think, are the things that we've seen historically in advice. So if you think about people's lives and, and life events that happen, there are often um, impacts on their finances. So we still see people who have unexpected changes, you know, they've um, suffered um, a, a, an illness, um, something quite quickly you know some, we see a lot of people who have had a stroke um, or perhaps have been diagnosed with um, dementia those sorts of, of, of uh, health problems and then as a result their finances have been impacted because they're no longer able to work or they're going to have to change the work that we're doing and that really became more apparent during Covid because of course we were seeing lots of people who became quite unwell and of course, one of the things that really um, shone out of that was that for many people, they don't have access to statutory sick pay. And again, that's, I suppose, to answer your question as well, one of the other things that has been driving some people's um, financial problems is, is the labour market and the changes in um, the way that people's working practices. Um, so typically you know people who are on contracts uh, short-term contracts or on agency work or zero hours contracts it's very very difficult for those people to um, manage their money because they don't know what their income is going to be from one week to the next um, so they've those sorts of scenarios are probably things that we've seen over the years working people who with those sorts of working patterns um, where you know some, sometimes there isn't enough money coming in to, to service debts or to, to pay for the essentials um, 
And then, of course, the other things that probably related to the housing market. So, um, you know, the increase in um, private rented accommodation um, and the increase in, in rents and service charges. Um, but we, we mostly probably deal with people still in social housing, um, but, but people still struggle with, with the lowest rents, um, you know, to, to pay for those sometimes. And of these problems, how do they affect their well-being and family life? Yeah, so I think as as a service, um, and certainly something probably going back to you know my interest sort of from being really young in in sort of social policy, I think it's really important to use the the evidence and and the the sort of learning you get from the themes that come through the door and the casework that that advisors do to try and sort of understand some of those wider issues more. So so for example. We worked with some of your colleagues at Salford University um, a few years ago to look into the experiences of people in the city claiming universal credit. And that was qualitative research. So there was a lot lot of quotes from people who were claiming universal credit, talking about their experiences, how it made them feel. And I think one of the the strong things that came out from that was how financial issues and, and the struggles of sort of navigating around the, the, the systems made people feel really anxious um, really contributed to people's um, mental health problems, but also contributed to isolation. And I think probably underestimate sometimes about that sort of being on a, a low income, particularly if you're on a low income for a very long time the sort of um, lack of opportunities you have to engage in any sort of social activities. And, um, you know, even we, we were talking before we, we came on about the, the cold and, and the people's fear, of, you know, and everybody's fear about fuel bills. And actually, if you're in the house for long periods of time because you, you haven't got the income to be able to go out and do something, even something fairly simple, um, you know, that, that it's bound to affect your well-being and your, and your health. I think the other thing, we, we did some work some time ago around um, benefit sanctions. And one of the things that came out of that in terms of the impacts on people was um, how it affects relationships in families. Um, so we know that one of the sort of coping mechanisms that a lot of households will use is to you know, rely on family and friends. Um, and again, we saw that during the pandemic that I think when people's money was running out, their coping mechanism was that they would go and eat at their mum's house or eat at their friend's house and things like that. Um, And obviously during COVID, when the restrictions were in there, they couldn't do that. Um, And we know as well that sort of those financial problems are a strain on relationships and and can cause, you know, um, disagreements in relationships. Um, So I think that's another factor as well. As an organisation, how do you support these clients to overcome these problems? So I think, you know, we, it's about a trusting relationship or trusted relationship between us. And I know that the the people that work in my services are really um, passionate about that and trying to support people um, as best they can. And I think that's getting, that's getting difficult, you know, at the moment. so in terms of sort of the debt problems, you know, we, there are a number of tools that I know the debt advisors use. So um, they will look at somebody's finances, obviously, um, look at 
if they've got priority debts, there are certain remedies and, and we have things now like breathe, the breathing space provisions, the statutory breathing space. So I know that the debt advisors have been using breathing space provisions to sort of, you know, put a, a moratorium on, on um, enforcement. And I think they found that useful in those sorts of cases. So where people perhaps have got rent arrears, because sometimes in advice, um, the people present when the situation's urgent, particularly for debts. So it might be that at that time, they've received a notice seeking possession or they've had a bailiff call. So these problems have obviously been building up for a while, but that's sort of what prompts people to get help. So the breathing space um, provisions allow advisors where there's a sort of an urgent situation to buy some time, really, because obviously there are things that we can do. And the message that we always try and get out to people around advice is, you know, it's never too late to get advice, you know, because because there are there are tools that we have right up until the last minute with something like that, that we can really make a difference. Um, so that will be something that we do to try and help people. And then the debt advisors are all qualified to do debt relief orders. So that's obviously one sort of debt solution where people have debts um, under £30,000 can get those debts written off. So so there are obviously still those um, things that they can do. I think if you, you spoke to debt advisors now, you know, in any debt advice service, they'll say that a lot of their time now is spent on mitigation. So those sorts of solutions have become less, um, you know, powerful or, or, or at least need to be done alongside other mitigation solutions. And unfortunately, the way that system is, is that a lot of those mitigation solutions are temporary. So we're trying to sort of put temporary solutions into what are long term problems. So the debt advisors will look elsewhere for that sort of holistic support. So one of the things that we do is we work really close with, with our local welfare scheme and when we're co-located with them, um, because what that will do is where somebody comes in and the, the issue is urgent and they perhaps haven't got enough money for food and fuel, we know that we can support them to get the, the food and fuel, the initial sort of need um, addressed uh, and they'll, they'll get vouchers and at least whilst the advisors do the advice work, which can take some time and to build up that trust and to, to put things in place. Um, so that's on the debt side. Um, on, on the welfare rights side, you know, I think there's an assumption sometimes that people are on the right benefits and, in, you know, and, and certainly anyone that works in welfare rights will know that, that that's not the case. And people actually, if you ask them what they're, they're getting, they sometimes find it difficult to explain to you what they're getting because um, it's such a complicated and fragmented system. So although I think because of the cost of living, we're seeing more people coming through for advice who actually are on the correct benefits. I think um, over the last 12 months, um, you know, we've probably brought in over five million pounds in terms of unclaimed benefits that welfare rights officers have been able to secure for people. Um, so there's still a lot we can do, um, you know, and that can be additional disability benefits, carers benefits, sort of going back to the point about people's circumstances changing and life events. But also um, we've noticed with with universal credit, you know, because it's such a um, an IT driven system that people can just be missing out on, on parts of the universal credit, which they they wouldn't pick up on that, that that's not being paid. So it does take quite a lot of skill 
to sort of explore somebody's benefits and actually, you know, identify where parts of them are missing. Um, so we do a lot of that in welfare rights and, and we've had people who've been missing out on extra money for being a carer. We've had people missing out on um, the housing costs sometimes. Uh, and it can take quite a lot of time to unravel those sorts of things. And I think that's the benefit for our advisors because we're in a local authority, we can take that time and we can have cases open for quite, you know, a number of months, a couple of years, until um, we get to, to that solution for people. What did you take away from these interviews, Paul? Well, I learned that there are three main drivers of poverty. The first one being the housing market. So people on lower incomes are not surprisingly living in rented accommodation and increasingly in private rented sector. Labour market is the is the second driver. It's we've seen an increase in in work poverty, partly because of the rise of flexible forms of employment, such as zero hour contracts. And the third driver being welfare reform, that which has reduced people's income because government has introduced a cap on benefits, but also they removed the uh, spare room subsidy, which has also um, affected uh, low income renters. I think what's sort of exacerbating this further for some individuals who are living on low income is that many of them, uh, many of their incomes don't remain static. It changes over time. You know, some, for example, are on seasonal work where they're, for example, likely to receive more income in the summer and less in the winter, or they're on insecure zero hour contracts, meaning that they aren't able to know how many hours they're likely to work in the coming weeks. And this can cause, you know, many, many problems, you know, first being that, you know, struggling to meet basic needs, but also the fact that they are likely to face future financial difficulties because of this. And really, how people, people on low incomes manage or try and manage this or try and bridge this gap between income and expenditure by drawing on their relational networks. So family and friends tend to be a source of borrowing, but also in-kind support. So, for example, uh, a lot of lone parents might um, depend on their uh, family to get one meal a, a week or a few meals a week. Um, and COVID produced a possibility to to rely on these networks, but also and um, the cost of living crisis has sort of put a further strain on the networks of low income um, high source because they themselves don't have that much to 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 share in terms of resources. Yeah, and I, th I think the sort of the, the strain you've just spoken about, I think mental health is is impacted on on that, you know, with the stress of managing on a low income. You know, like Catherine said, uh, that you know people aren't directly coming to her; they're being mostly referred from you know, mental health in, uh, mental health professionals. And if you look at what David was saying, that you know he pointed that pointed to the fact that many are, are feeling guilty or ashamed of managing on a low income and are therefore isolated due to the lack of opportunities uh, because they're on a low income. So I think to sort of summarise the two interviews, I'd say firstly that, you know, the, the, sort of the three key drivers of, of, of poverty are the, uh, you know, the labour market, the housing market and the welfare reforms. And secondly, though, is the, the importance of relational networks to supporting those on low incomes and how, you know, COVID and the cost of living has put a pressure on this network.
in the next episode we're going to be talking about why people don't save more with james kelly from the money and pension service and matt bland from co-op credit union and that's the innovation in financial inclusion podcast with andrew and paul if you want to find out more or contribute to the discussion go to hub.salford.ac.uk forward slash cfs or follow us on twitter at cfs underscore sbs bye for now